From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Hey, tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. We talk faith, family, and fellowship on Tuesdays. Um, it's a very special mailbag edition of uh, EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We've got some listener comment line calls, some folks that have held over from a previous episode, and uh, some emails and YouTube and, and Facebook questions, and it's going to be an exciting hour, so be sure to stick around and stay with us. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall produces the program, and our host, as he is every Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Jack. Thank you very much. And more importantly, where are you? Where am I right now? Well, in recording the mailbag, I'm still in my office in Kentucky. But when this airs, when this airs, I will also be in Kentucky at uh, the general chapter. The Fathers of Mercy held once every six years, and so we ask for everyone's uh, prayers for our general chapters that takes place this week. Will, will you know any outcomes by the time the airing of this show happens? Uh, probably not, but, but the, the following week we will, yeah. So you'll still be sweating at this point. I don't know about that. <laughs> God's will be done. I'm the Blessed Mother at Cana. Do whatever he tells you. <laughs> there you go. I like that. I like that a lot. So, Father, when I wandered into the church, interestingly enough, they didn't just let me do whatever I wanted and make up my own rules, but they had some guidelines that allegedly were left by the apostles for how I ought to behave, huh? Yeah, that's right. You know, we have the, the five precept laws of the church that help ensure a, a necessary minimum of practicing the faith, and the Church imposes these through her magisterial authority, through the Apostolic College that she receives from the Apostolic College, to help ensure that her children practice the faith at least minimally. So I'm going to comb through the five precept laws as they're enunciated in the Universal Catechism. Uh, and remember, Holy Mother Church, just that, as a Holy Mother, wants to see her children, her baptized children, practice the faith at least minimally, just like any physical, natural mother would want to see her children practice the faith at least minimally, right? So I just want to comb through these uh, fairly briefly for our springboard topic today, Jack. So, you know, the, the very necessary minimum, the forgotten precepts of the Church, what are the basic requirements of being a practicing Catholic? And, and an important part of the answer includes what are known as the precepts of the Church here. Unfortunately, few Catholics seem to know what they are, let alone be conscientious, conscientiously trying to follow them. This is unfortunate because their being practiced would actually improve the lives of many Catholics. So the Catechism teaches that there's five precepts which by no means exhaust what is required of the Christian life. Again, this is just a, a minimal requirement. So why does the Church even have the precepts at all? According to the Catechism itself, they are, quote, meant to guarantee to the faithful the very necessary minimum in the spirit of prayer and moral effort in the growth and love of both God and neighbor, end quote. So what are they? We'll come through them now. Number one, you shall attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation and rest from servile labor. This requires the faithful to sanctify the day, commemorating the resurrection of the Lord, as well as the principal liturgical feast, honoring the mysteries of the Lord, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the saints. In the first place, by participating in the Eucharistic celebration, in which the Christian community is gathered by resting, from those works and activities which could impede such a sanctification of these days. 
Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligations are not suggestions or optional, and unless you have a really good reason, all Catholics need to be there. Also notice the rest from servile labor. Uh, these uh, are supposed to be days of rest as well, okay? Uh, number two, the, you shall confess your sins at least once a year. This ensures preparation for the Eucharist by the reception of the Sacrament of Reconciliation, which continues baptism's work of conversion and forgiveness in the person's life. Catholics are not supposed to receive the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin, and the Sacrament of Confession is the ordinary means by which a person can be cleansed of mortal sin. Since you are required to receive the Eucharist at least once a year, which we're about to discuss in precept number three, and since the Church is realistic about human sin, we have to go to confession at least once a year as well in preparation for the once-a-year communion at the Easter season. But that's just the bare minimum, right? Uh, so that you can receive the Eucharist more often than once a year, and for the salvation of your own soul, most Catholics probably need to go to confession with some sort of regularity throughout the year. And once a month, for example, is a great, great practice. Just 12 times a year, not too much to ask when you realize that the year has 365 days in it, huh? And number three, you shall receive the sacrament of the Eucharist at least during the Easter season. This guarantees, as a minimum, the reception of the Lord's body and blood in connection with the Paschal feasts, the origin and center of the Christian liturgy. The Christian faith is all about Jesus, his work on the cross, and being united with him in grace. The Eucharist is one of the main ways God has given to us to apply the grace of the gospel to our lives. As with confession, receiving the Eucharist once a year is a bare minimum, as normal practicing Catholics should be receiving the Eucharist far more than that. The point is, though, if a person is not receiving the Eucharist even once a year, there is a problem. Number four, you shall observe the days of fasting and abstinence as established by the Church. This ensures the times of ascesis and penance which prepare us for the liturgical feasts and help us acquire mastery over our instincts and freedom of heart. Fasting is a normal part of the Christian life because Jesus says so in the Gospels, for example, in Matthew 6, and because it helps us to grow in virtue. The Church has prescribed minimal fasting during certain parts of the liturgical year. None of it is very difficult, actually, but that's because it's a bare minimum requirement. All Christians can voluntarily do more uh, difficult and more frequent fasts uh, for which a spiritual director can provide helpful insight. Huh? And number five, you shall help to provide for the needs of the Church. Uh, this means that the faithful are obliged to assist with the material needs of the Church, each according to his own ability. The Holy Catholic Church has the most important mission of any organization in the history of the world, preaching the soul-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Carrying on this mission, of course, takes earthly resources. Those of us who, by God's gratuitous grace, have received the gift of faith and a new life in Jesus Christ should naturally want to generously provide what we can to support this desperately important work. But because of our human weakness, the Church has made giving support an obligation of Church law. And you can do it through your time, your talent, or your treasure. Um, and the Church teaches a variety in regards to that. And the, the, the tithing is important of, of the treasure according to one's means because of the nature of, of getting things done and, and, and serving the poor and, and, and getting donations and everything else. Huh? Uh, note that the Church doesn't prescribe a certain amount or percentage, but only says that people give each according to his or her own ability. Each Catholic should prayerfully consider what they can do to support the Church, but they should know that not helping in any way when one has the ability to do so isn't an option. Think here, too, of the phrase again, 
time, talent, and treasure. So again, to comb through the five precept laws of the Church, number one, you shall attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation and rest from unnecessary servile labor. Number two, you shall confess your sins at least once a year. Number three, you shall receive the sacrament of the Eucharist at least during the Easter season, which is that 50-day season in the Church. Number four, you shall observe the days of fasting and abstinence established by the Church. And number five, you shall help to provide for the needs of the Church. And again, why do we have the five precept laws, Jack, that come to us through the Church's own juridical power rooted in her magisterium from the Apostles? Because she self-imposes them on her members out of great, great love, Holy Mother Church does, through the Apostolic College, precisely to help guarantee at least a a minimal effort in, in the spirit of prayer and moral effort in the growth and love of God and neighbor by one. We want to live our baptism and our confirmation sustained by regular Eucharist and reconciliation, whether one be single or married or in holy orders, and even if one be a valid candidate for the anointing of the sick, living the, this sacramental life, practicing these five precept laws uh, help ensure at least a minimal effort in that regard. You know, Father Wade, I think sometimes we, we uh, look at folks who uh, have the complaint that they're not getting anything out of their Catholic faith or that they're not uh, feeling enriched by anything that the Church has to offer. And I think more often than not, if you probed a little deeper and asked these people how they're doing with just these five minimal precepts, I think most of these folks that are seemingly unsatisfied are really not even putting a toe in the water to the minimal degree. And yeah, I know and you, so, traveling around, being an itinerant missionary preacher, gets to see a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't be in church, but maybe came at the invitation of someone else for this mission. And you can see the transforming power that these just these simple precepts can have on people's lives, huh? No, that's exactly right. Just coming back to regular practice of confession and regular practice of the Eucharist, the only two of the seven sacraments that can be received over and over again with much frequency, can move a person spiritually by volumes in their day-to-day lived experience. And it is important. And so, and so you know, they're, they're wondering why they're not feeling anything fed by their Catholic faith, and yet you question them about the five precept laws, they're not even following four of, four of the five, let's say, and they wonder why they feel stagnant in the spiritual life. Great point, great point. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we're not going to be taking your phone calls today. Uh, Father Wade is is in the Fathers of Mercy conclave. So keep uh, all of those good folks uh, in your prayers as they go about the business of what they do uh, every so often there in Auburn, Kentucky. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You can receive weekly emails from EWTN's bookmark brief, including a short video blog. It features the author giving a short synopsis of their work in his or her own words. So join Doug Keck for that, and you can actually visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe, and it can be sent right to your inbox uh, EWTN's bookmark brief right here on EWTN. To the phones we go. First up is Teresa in the great state of Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Teresa, welcome to the program. 
Thank you. Hi, um, Teresa. Hi. I had a question about Mary and um, being born without original sin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that he... Um, so I've heard that somebody explained to me that Mary was still tempted but chose not to sin. But then um, I also... I'm wondering, okay, well, she was also given, um, she was full of grace, so she was giving all the grace. Correct. And my question is, why are, why aren't we given full grace? And um, also, does she have, um, is her, is she freely, does she freely choose? Um, Like, does she still have complete free will? Yes. And that answers the the part about us, because we too have free will. Uh, Mary could have sinned, but never did. So you're asking is basically, is it, is it within Catholic Church teaching or orthodoxy to believe that Mary had freedom to commit personal sin, but chose to cooperate fully with God's grace? Yes, uh, Mary most certainly had the freedom to commit sin, even though she did not suffer from the original sin and its disordered effects or disordered desires, she still had the human power of free will. Okay, Adam and Eve were created without original sin. Mary was conceived without original sin. Adam and Eve were created without original sin, yet chose to sin. Mary was conceived without original sin, yet chose to cooperate with the grace of God. Um, We were conceived in original sin, yet we still have the free will to choose to cooperate with God's grace or not. You know, for example, uh, there are some saints, um, uh, for example, Dominic Savio, who died, I believe he died just days shy of his 15th birthday, Therese, who died at age 24 uh, from tuberculosis in the convent, Um, St. Faustina Kowalska uh, is another one, Uh, St. Gemma, uh, is another one. Uh, Gemma G- uh, Giuliani uh, is another one. When they died, their respective confessors slash spiritual directors came forward and said, to the best of my sincerest or of knowledge, they never committed a mortal sin. Now, does that mean that they never committed a venial sin? Uh, probably not. But, but, The venial sins as well could have been very minimal. So in other words, my point is these four saints, and these are just four of them, I could come up with others if I thought about it more, um, and especially looked at their writings of their their spiritual directors, and it's not revealing anything from the confessional, because to reveal something from the confessional is to reveal something that was confessed in the confessional. So for them to say that to the best of their sincerest of knowledge as a confessor or a spiritual director, they never committed mortal sin, it's simply because there was no mortal sin, so they're not revealing anything from the sacrament of, of penance. So my point is that they chose, these saints, to cooperate with God's grace to such a degree that they never committed a, a mortal sin. Now, they probably committed venial sins, and I'm sure that it was venial matter confessed at the confessional. But even then, like I said uh, in an earlier tape show, uh, or excuse me, an earlier live show that was taped, uh, our goal is to want to be able to not only shun mortal sin, but to shun venial sin as well. So that's the situation with Mary. M- Mary, part of her greatness is that she could have sinned, but never did. Uh, and that, that's the great thing about her. 
And so, again, Mary certainly had the freedom to commit sin, even though she did not suffer from the original sin and its disordered desires or effects. She still had the human power of free will. Adam and Eve were created without original sin. Mary was conceived without original sin. Adam and Eve created without the original sin, still yet chose to sin. Mary conceived without original sin and, it's, and, and thus didn't have its uh, disordered effects, chose to cooperate with the grace of God fully. And that's, that's our Blessed Mother. That's our mom. This is who we want on our side. You know, do whatever he tells you. What were her first words at the wedding feast of, of, of her words at the wedding feast of Cana, Jesus' first public miracle? Do whatever he tells you. That's her goal is to lead us more closely to her son. Great question. Thank you so much. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Uh, Ron was watching in a previous episode on Facebook, and he wants to know, can a tattoo be blessed, either the physical portion, the ink, or the art itself? You know, that's a question that I only heard recently as well, uh, and, and I haven't had time to research it. You know, if, if, if it's a holy figure... Uh, it may not be a bad thing to do because you don't know what the ink artist was doing in regards to the person who was his client ahead of you and what kind of um, uh, image he was putting on that person. And thus the same tools and the same bottle of ink were used. And uh, you, let's say you got a Celtic cross uh, on your forearm. Well, the person who was the client just ahead of you, uh, whom the same uh, tattoo artist worked on, what did that person get? Did they get a pentagram? And were the same tools used? And was the same ink bottle used? Uh, and done by the same artist who doesn't have any qualms about doing pentagrams? Uh, this is something pretty serious. This is why I'm, I'm very, very personally, personally, adverse to, to the, this culture of, of, of the getting the tattoos. So uh, we have to question these things, you know, if, what, what can be a portal, what, what can be a doorway to uh, uh, oppression or, or, or uh, obsession or, or outright possession. And so we want to be very, very careful. So if it's a holy image, just like any other holy image, uh, you could you could have it blessed. Um, I don't think the church would say that you can't do that, uh, but it's something that I think we need to answer even before we get the tattoo. Do we really want to get one? And that that's the question there. And uh, you know, what are we going to get? Where's it going to be put on the body? Is it going to affect the virtues of modesty and purity in, in exhibiting it for others to see it? Uh, are modesty and purity going to be affected by some way? Is the style of our dress going to be affected some way? Uh, again, what was the artist who did my tattoo? What was he doing with the client just ahead of me or, or the person before that client? These are all questions that need to be asked. And uh, you know, a, question, uh, a great book uh, that, that addresses in a couple of instances the whole a phenomena of tattoos is is Monsignor Stephen Rossetti's um, a Diary of an American Exorcist. It's only out for a couple months now by uh, Sophia Institute Press. I would strongly urge uh, anybody who wants to know more about this uh, to read those couple of entries he has regarding tattoos. Great question. Thank you so much. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about forgiveness, and Anne was watching on YouTube during that program, and she wants to know, how do I forgive someone who molested me as a child? That person has since passed away. Well, that's a great question, and even if the person hadn't passed away, remember, I made it very clear during that live broadcast, uh, in your forgiveness of the person, 
don't equate that with, ha- with having to be the person's best bud and continue to hang around them. They could have done a real injustice to you, as in this case with the molestation they did, okay? So I want to make that part clear first. That's worth reiterating, okay? doesn't Your forgiveness towards the person doesn't mean you have to be their best bud. You have to continue to hang out with them. You have to continue to converse with them at family gatherings. No, but you need to be pleasant. You need to be genuine, genuinely cl- kind, and you want to forgive for your own healing aspect. Okay, and who knows how you act towards them, knowing the horror that they did to you, that they convert from later in life, seeing that you're kind towards them will help them with their own conversion. That's worth taking into account too. But in this case, with the person being already deceased, it should be uh, a wonderful thing to do in having masses said for the blessed repose of their soul and to offer suffrages for them yourself. So, you know, for example, we we in the Catholic Church were big on triduums. The greatest triduum of the year is Holy Thursday night through Easter Sunday morning. How about celebrating or having said a, a, a celebration of three masses for the blessed repose of the soul of this, of this person? And you don't even have to give their name to the parish secretary when you sign up to have the masses said, these three masses said for the blessed repose of their soul. You could just say, uh, for the blessed repose of the soul of a particular individual, and you don't even have to give the name if you don't want their name to appear in the parish bulletin. Uh, God knows who you're having the three Masses said. How about offering a triduum of Holy Communions for the person? How about remembering them as an automatic staple intention in your daily rosary and your daily Divine Mercy chaplet. Not that you have to pray an extra chaplet for them each day, or, or that you have to pray an extra rosary for them each day. No, you don't have to do that. But just ask God to keep them in the blessed repose of their soul, and in part, as well for your own healing and forgiveness of them and what they did to you. Keep them as a staple intention in your own regular personal daily rosary and your own personal daily chaplet of divine mercy. These are, these are examples of offering suffrages for the dead, and we uh, want to offer their soul to God that God will, um, God willing, welcome them into eternal light at some point after purgation, if purgation indeed needs to be done. And so remember, you, you have it within your power because you're still living to work with God in offering suffrages for the individual. St. Augustine, you know, the God who willed to create us without us does not will to save us without us. St. Catherine of Siena says, the God who made you without your cooperation will not save you without your cooperation. Well, if this is true for us ourselves while still living, and we want to cooperate with God while still living, then I not only want to keep it within my own confines for self in working with God— I thank God that I'm still living, that I can make frequent and fervent, deliberate acts of the will to include the blessed repose of souls of others and offer them to God uh, on their own behalf while I'm still living. As a member of the church militant, I want to pray for the church suffering in purgatory. Uh, I want to ask the church triumphant in heaven to pray for me. This three-tiered hierarchy or the, uh, known as the doctrine of the communion of saints, the, the members of the church triumphant in heaven, the members of the church militant still living on earth, and the members of the church suffering in purgatory, um, the holy souls in purgatory. So you, the fact that you're still living, the fact that you can even ask this question about how can you overcome the forgiveness of the person who molested you and, and they are now deceased tells me that, that you want to forgive them, that you want healing yourself, and what a great thing it is that you're still living to make frequent and fervent deliberate acts of the will in offering suffrages for their souls for their soul, whether whether through masses, whether through Holy Communions, whether through your daily prayer life, like the Rosary and the Divine Mercy Chaplet, 
and 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 Satan Satan hates this type of thing. He hates the living praying for the dead. Uh, he doesn't like the church triumphant in heaven helping out the church militant on earth. He doesn't like the saints. Uh, and so we thank God for this great gift of the communion of saints and remembering all the while that God in his omniscience, his, he's all-knowing, uh, a thousand years are like a day and a day is like a thousand years. God sees everything on one line. It's all a day to him. So don't doubt his mercy in forgiving the person who molested you and don't doubt his mercy in allowing you to be fully, fully healed. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. We won't be taking your calls today, today, but stay tuned. More to come. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. We've got an email here from Daniel in Indianapolis, and he says, Father Way, can you please explain the purpose of attending adoration and give examples of how I can engage myself in an hour of adoration? Great question. Well, Eucharistic adoration is when we want to adore our Eucharistic Lord and King uh, exposed in a monstrance, where you can actually gaze on the consecrated host. When we say the phrase Eucharistic adoration, that's usually what we mean, is that our Lord is exposed in the monstrance, the beautiful brass or, or gold and or silver or precious metal plated receptacle that, that holds the large host. Um, we could also do Eucharistic adoration when our Lord is not exposed in the monstrance by simply making a visit to a Catholic church and praying in front of the tabernacle, which houses the consecrated host. We can do that too. That's also Eucharistic adoration. My only point here is that when we say the phrase Eucharistic adoration, it usually is in reference or means, it's usually in reference to or means exposed Eucharistic adoration. And a great way to do that is to take your hour and divide it up into four 15-minute quadrants based on the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, 15 minutes of adoration where you're just uh, with a, cogn- a cognizant act of the will that's that's fervent in, in, in its willing it, is just to adore our Lord present. So 15 minutes of adoration, 15 minutes of contrition, telling God that you're sorry for your sins, any current sins that you know that you have, that you want to get to confession for, if they're mortal sin and if they're venial sin, telling them you're sorry right then and making a good act of contrition, because remember, making a good act of contrition wipes away venial sins. Mortal sins need the confessional, strictly speaking, but venial sins do not. There's many ways that venial sins are forgiven. In fact, during this second 15 minutes of contrition, any venial sins that you think of right then and there, close that thought process with an act of contrition, and praise God that He's just forgiven you of your venial sins. Uh, thirdly, 15 minutes of thanksgiving, just thanking God, thanking Him for the gifts uh, that He's given you. You know, I thank God daily for the five uh, bodily senses of sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing, and, and my health of them. Um, I thank Him for the ability to walk, the ability to talk, the ability to breathe, the ability to move about freely, and for overall general health. 
and the ability to think rationally and, and to think rationally and, and the ability to swallow. I had an anesthetist, an anesthetist approach me one time and say, Father, thank God in that litany that you say you pray each day in Thanksgiving for the different things like the bodily senses and whatnot. Thank him for the gift to swallow because to swallow is such a great gift. So many times he said, I help people come out of their anesthesia from their outpatient surgery. And when they're coming out of anesthesia, they don't know exactly what's going on and they start choking a little bit. And the, and the, the look on their eyes is so sad. And I, I, I'm right there for them. And I tell them, it's okay. It's okay. Here, you're sitting up. You just got out of surgery to remind them what's happening. He says, but to be able to swallow is such a beautiful, beautiful gift. So I, I added that to my list. Um, and then also, I, I thank God daily for the four faculties of, 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 uh, of the soul, the, the intellect, the will, the memory and imagination. So I thank God for all these things daily in my morning offering, but whenever I make a, a holy hour, which is usually daily, um, I thank Him as well. I repeat that litany uh, of those things. Um, and then also for of Thanksgiving, a litany of Thanksgiving. And then uh, S, uh, at the end of Acts, A-C-T-S, the, these four 15-minute quadrants of how you can break up your holy hour, and this is just a suggestion since you asked the question, what can I do to make the holy hour more fervent, uh, is 15 minutes of supplication. Supplication simply means to ask God for things, huh? But remember, you want to ask according to His most holy will, not your most holy will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not, not, uh, not, not my will be done, you know, but thy will be done. So uh, that's a, 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 a nomenclature or a plan or a schema that's often given for the holy hour is based on acts, A-C-T-S. Um, I've also seen arts, A-R-T-S, where reparation takes place of contrition, but really there's some dovetailing there between contrition and reparation, because in being sorry for something and being contrite, you're simultaneously uh, making an attitude of reparation and want to repair for the, for the sins you did that you now have contrition for. So whether adoration, reparation, thanksgiving, and supplication, or whether adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. That's a great model to make up your Eucharistic uh, uh, holy hour. And remember, St. Teresa of Calcutta, uh, St. John of the Cross, they all said that in their own way that n in no way whatsoever is time ever, ever lost in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. Never, ever. And so that's, that's an important thing to remember, that we want to we be able to, to make at least a weekly Eucharistic Holy Hour, in my opinion. Here at the Fathers of Mercy, it's part of our daily orarium. But for example, um, St. Alphonsus Liguori, he says, the churches are always open. All can go in to converse with Jesus whenever they want, or at least can ask for the key. He desires that we speak to him with unbounded confidence. It is for this purpose that he remains under the appearance of bread, truly present in his body, blood, soul, and divinity in our tabernacles. Uh, St. Mary Joseph Rosallo, the foundress of the Daughters of Our Lady of Mercy, she says, quote, go to Jesus. He loves you and is waiting for you there in the tabernacle to give you many, many graces. He is on the altar there, surrounded by angels adoring and praying. Let those angels make some room for you so that you too can go and join those angels in doing what they do so well. 
Is that a great quote? <laughs> you know, kind of kick the kick the angels off to the side and have them make some room for you so you can also join them <laughs> in adoring. It's a great thing. And St. Peter Julian Amard, who loved the Blessed Sacrament very much, he founded the Blessed Sacrament Fathers, in fact. He says, go to your adoration as one would go to heaven, to the divine banquet, and tell yourself, quote, in one hour, our Eucharistic Lord and King will give me an audience of grace and love. He has invited me. He is waiting for me. He is longing for me. I will go now. Great quote. And uh, St. John Vianney, again, he says, uh, we should consider those moments spent before the Blessed Sacrament as the happiest moments of our lives. And then St. Jose Maria Escriva, the founder of Opus Dei, he says, when you approach the tabernacle to do your Eucharistic adoration, remember this, he has been awaiting you there for some 20 centuries. Pretty powerful. So yes, adoration, Eucharistic adoration, whether in the exposed monstrance or not, just praying in front of the tabernacle, both ways are very, very powerful. And I believe that whether single, married, a consecrated religious priest, brother, or sister, whether an active religious, a contemplative religious, uh, we should be able to, to make frequent um, visits to the Blessed Sacrament that are appropriate to our state in life. Great question. Thank you so much. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. We have, however, gotten some calls that have come in after hours on our listener comment line call, specifically for Father Wade. Let's take a listen to one of those now. This is Stan from Washington, Georgia. I love the way Pope Benedict talks about the Beatitudes as the inner biography of Jesus. One of my favorite uh, spiritual writers is Oswald Chambers, and he'd mentioned that uh, the Beatitudes are not something you do, but something that happens to you when the Holy Spirit is having its way with you. Uh, I would like if Father uh, could comment upon that. Thank you. Yeah, great, great question. You know, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount has been termed Jesus's masterpiece. Uh, many scripture scholars focusing just on that, sacred scripture, refer to it as, as the greatest discourse ever given. Uh, you know, in it, readers can find most of the significant themes relevant to the remainder of St. Matthew's Gospel about Jesus. Um, and, and they are interiorizing into the person's life. When the Holy Spirit is working in that person's life, they tell us how to live. And the best analogy I can come up with that is this, you know, you talk to any ecclesiastical canon lawyer, they talk about the strict letter of the law, or the spirit of the law, or if, or if you talk to any, any secular lawyer, they're going to tell you the same thing. There is such a thing as the strict letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. In other words, how it's, imp- how it's uh, applied, how it's interiorized. Well, many scripture scholars have, have ref- and church fathers, for, for that matter, they actually say this, um, where the Ten Commandments are the strict letter of the law, thou shalt this, thou shalt that, thou shalt not this, thou shalt not do that. While the Ten Commandments are the strict letter of law, the eight Beatitudes, or nine Beatitudes, depending on how the last one is broken up and and what scripture translation you're looking at, but I'll I'll use the phrase eight Beatitudes. The eight Beatitudes are the spirit of the law. So the Ten Commandments, the strict letter of the law, the the Beatitudes, uh, the, the spirit of the law. It's how they're how we are to live the commandments of Christ. Um, and so that, that's a beautiful analogy, I think, in applied to law itself. Notice that both sets of, of teachings were given 
on a mountaintop, Mount Sinai, for the Ten Commandments given to Moses, and what tradition holds to be Mount Tabor for Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount, where he gives the eight or nine Beatitudes, also on a mountaintop. So it shows the exaltedness of this spirit and letter, right? And that's, that's a great thing. Uh, as Jesus begins his sermon, the audience is apparently his closest disciples, but when he ends, the audience is much, much broader. Uh, the primary theme of the sermon is, is how to live righteousness to the hilt and also how to live justice and love to the hilt. Huh? Uh, and here's another important point. The Beatitudes point out God's favor toward humanity rather than God's demand. The Ten Commandments point out more of his demand. Thou shalt this, thou shalt that. Thou shalt not this, thou shalt not that, as I said earlier, where, where the Beatitudes point out God's favor upon the human person. If, if you follow my commands and you, you live this way with these proper interior dispositions, you'll be able to overcome these things when they come your way, like the persecution that's mentioned at the end of the, of the Beatitudes. Um, and it's also important to note, too, that the Beatitudes don't represent expected cultural categories, we could say. For example, people who mourn are recognized favorably in, in the famous sermon, and, and developing an, an active strategy in peacemaking is hardly popular in first century life under Roman rule, right? So Jesus is doing something uh, quite out of the ordinary here. Um, and they're the promises of happiness. That The Beatitudes have also been called the promises of happiness made by Christ to those who faithfully accept his teaching and follow his divine example. Um, preached in the Sermon on the Mount, again, a, what tradition holds to be Mount Tabor, they're recorded in the Gospel of St. Matthew at its very beginning of chapter 5, and mentioned again uh, in, in St. Luke chapter 6. So in Matthew's Gospel, there's eight to nine blessings of a spiritual nature applicable to all Christians, and in Luke's Gospel, there are eight. Uh, four of the blessings are more of an external character addressed to the disciples, and, and, and four uh, more maledictions that are threatened on those who do the opposite of what the particular beatitude encourages. Um, and so this is why the woe to you appears uh, in, in the readings as well. Um, in other words, if you don't follow, this will happen. Uh, but in both versions, the, the Beatitudes are expressions of the New Covenant established by Jesus, who says himself he did not come to abolish the Old Covenant, he did not come to abolish the Old Law that is the Ten Commandments, but rather to bring it to perfection, and the Beatitudes are that perfection, uh, where happiness is assured already in this life, provided a person totally gives himself to the imitation of Christ. So they are an interiorizing of how we're going to live the message of Christ, and, and when the Holy Spirit guides us in that, uh, it is beautiful indeed. So, so great point. Thank you so much for sharing your witness about the Beatitudes. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Let's take a listen to another listener comment line call. This is Tony from Michigan, and my question is for Open Line. So I'm considering the priesthood, but I struggle with one sin, uh, one ve one um, mortal sin recurring, and I'm afraid that I could, could struggle with that sin during my priesthood as well, and I'm wondering if that should keep me from pursuing the priesthood. Thank you. Well, it's important to definitely grow in virtue regarding that recurring sin, as you describe it, a vice, before you enter. I would agree with that, and it's something you also want to share with your confessor. Uh, we should not have any uh, deeply ingrained habitual vices upon entering the seminary. Those things, we need a certain sobriety 
uh, whether it's recreational drugs, whether it's lust, whether it's drinking, there should be a certain sobriety definitely in place by the time you make application. But the good news is, is that it doesn't necessarily negate uh, the fact that you have it now before entering the seminary doesn't necessarily negate you one day possibly entering the seminary, because I believe in the power of God's grace. I believe in the power of transformation. I believe in the power of overcoming habitual vice. But it takes, um, uh, it takes a backbone and an iron will of steel to want to shun the vice and to get on a regimen that promotes the opposite corresponding virtue to the vice in question. It also takes regular confession, and it takes a very, very good confessor and a very, very good spiritual director. And remember, they could be the same person, but they don't have to be. Um, a, A confessor has to be a priest, no doubt about it. But a spiritual director may be a priest or may be somebody else. You may want your spiritual director, for example, to be a very good practicing Catholic a uh, layperson who's a psychologist who has a, who has a, their own practice because they can help you maybe get to the root areas of this ingrainment that you're experiencing with this particular vice. So while you do want to have the vice um, uh, uh, completely out of your life by the time you enter the seminary, the fact that you have it now does not necessarily negate a possible priestly vocation in the future is what I'm trying to say. But you are correct in that you want to have it out of your life by the time you enter. Because when you enter the seminary, you want the growth in the spiritual life to already have a—you want growth in the spiritual life in the priesthood and in your studies to grow on what's already a firmly established foundation of virtue. Okay, that's why you want things already correctly in place upon entering seminary for first year. Okay, so now that you're you're now before all that in any amount of years, now that you're struggling with the vice, you have good self knowledge to know that it's vice. You have good self knowledge to know that it's recurring. Uh, explain the nature of its habitualness to your confessor. Ask if there's a good psychologist that's a Catholic that understands the sacramental economy of the Church and the importance of celebrating the seven sacraments, a psychologist who, who isn't purely secular, but who, who is faith-based, that you can go to. Uh, ask your confessor if there's somebody in the parish with such a practice that might be willing to take you on for spiritual direction. So these are some good pointers. And then you want to start your own strong prayer life now. Daily Rosary is very powerful. Daily Divine Mercy Chaplet. Good exercise and eating to overcome any uh, any vice of any nature. Um, also, good and holy friendships. Um, make a list if, if there's any fallings out that you've had with other people that have never been healed. Do you want to heal those? Um, your relationship with your parents, if they're still living, uh, your siblings. Um, these are all things that can help us heal in a, in a long run of a particular vice that we're experiencing right now, or in praise God by His grace, in a short run. You know, we, we tend to think that maybe a life of anger and unforgiveness doesn't have anything to do with the vice we suffer from right now, when in reality it does. So if you can get healed of those past relationships, say with that brother you've had a fallen out with for five years now, um, you've had a fallen out with him, healing with him can get you back on a life of being a greater recipient of God's grace, His actual and sanctifying graces through the sacrament of confession, and thus more powerful graces to overcome the vice that you say you're currently suffering from. So hopefully those pointers will help you out. Great question. Thank you so much. It's Tuesday night. That means Mother Angelica Live Classics. Tonight uh, she talks about the inward struggle, uh, discussing the classic and constant inner struggle of doing the things we don't like and not doing the things we do like. 
just as St. Paul did. That's Mother Angelica Live Classics tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Television and Radio. Again, this is a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We're not taking your calls today, but we are going through some calls that we've received after hours. And uh, let's hear another one. This is Joel from Fort Wayne. I wanted to find out, he's been talking about the line of the popes coming through Peter. In the early Testament, in the New Testament, it talks about James actually being one of the leaders of the church. And in some context, it seems as though he is the leader of early church, not Peter. Could you speak to that? Sure, certainly. Yeah, you know, the 15th chapter of Acts is significant for its description, we could say, of the First Council of the Christian Church, providing insights into the inner workings of the early church and the relationships among the key leaders. Um, the chapter, the 15th chapter again of Acts, is also notable as a battleground for ongoing current-day disputes over church authority. Uh, on one side stands the Catholic Church, upholding Peter as the foremost apostle and leader of the universal church, and then in opposition to that, is a, in a very diverse array, really, of attitudes, stands a host of scholars and theologians who claim that James, the brother of the Lord, quote-unquote, uh, was the leader of the early church, uh, perhaps even the first pope. So this position has roots going back to the Reformation, first of all, and many Protestants, whether they be conservative, liberal, or progressive, uh, in theological terms, consider James the greatest of the early church leaders. So really, we go beyond that. First of all, we go to history, that it was only really questioned at the time of the Reformation, okay? Uh, second of all, you can go back to the earliest times of the church, and, and even other Scripture passages, primarily from Scripture, in fact, uh, regarding other other um, proofs that we have uh, in defense of Peter, right? So although Matthew 16... 18, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Uh, what, you held bound on, what you hold bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, what you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Uh, beyond that, Matthew 16, 18, uh, which is a central and key passage attesting to Peter's unique position, granted by whom directly? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the rest of the New Testament also provides ample evidence for it. And here's some examples, and so we lean on these as well, as opposed to the to the James uh, argument. Huh? Uh, Peter's name occurs first in all lists of apostles: uh, Matthew 10, Mark 3, uh, Luke 6, and Acts 1. Um, and Matthew even calls him the first. Okay, literally, Matthew calls him the first in chapter 10, verse 2. Uh, Peter alone receives a new name, rock, sol something solemnly conferred by Christ himself. Huh? James didn't have his name changed. Um, Peter alone uh, among the apostles is mentioned by name as having been prayed for by Jesus Christ in order that, quote, his faith may not fail in Luke twenty two thirty two. That's a big one. Uh, Peter alone among the apostles is exhorted by Jesus to, quote, strengthen your brethren in Luke twenty two thirty two, 32. Um, that is not said to James. Uh, Peter is the one who first confesses Christ's divinity in Matthew 16, 16. Um, who do people say that I am? Uh, oh, well, some say Elijah, some say uh, John the Baptist, some say one of the other prophets, but you, you 12, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who immediately thrusts forward and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, huh? 
So Peter, again, is the first one to confess Christ's divinity. Uh, Peter alone is told that he has received divine knowledge by a special revelation. Uh, That's Matthew 16, 17. And Peter is regarded by the Jews in Acts 4 as the leader and spokesman of Christianity. That's very, very clear. And Peter is also regarded by the common people in the same way, you know, the Gentiles, the the common folk there. Uh, And that's in Acts 2 as well as Acts 5. So in Acts, Peter gave the sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 1. He led the replacing of Judas. He oversaw that. That's, that's also Acts 1. Uh, he worked the first miracle of the church in the church's age, um, right after Christ's death. That's in Acts 3. And he condemned uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. And, so, and, and then his mere shadow worked miracles. Okay, that's chapter 5 as well. And he was the first person after Christ to raise the dead, that we're told in Scripture. That's Acts chapter 9. And he took the gospel to the Gentiles, Acts 10 tells us. And Peter's name appears at least 54 times in Acts, where James's name appears a total of only four times. So if you're trying to get the word across for the new movement of the way, quote-unquote, which is what the Christian movement was known as, meaning the way of of Christ, um, and then they were called Christians uh, also, um, you're going to have an establishment on a particular leader like that. And so again, Peter's mentioned 54 times in Acts, uh, where James is only mentioned four times. So uh, when you add the fact that the arguments never really came up until the Protestant Reformation, and then all those things that I just said about Peter and Acts regarding Peter, uh, it's it's pretty clear. And then we also look to the constant teaching tradition of the Church through her magisterium. Uh, That's also important. So great question. Thank you so much. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we're not taking your phone calls today, but we appreciate you tuning in for some brand new content today. Um, You know, Father Wade, uh, suppose somebody like me, who's uh, in his late 50s and is uh, very much considering an itinerant preaching vocation, could I call the Fathers of Mercy? You sure can. You could call us at 270-542-4146, or you can go to Father... What's what's that? (laughs) And you'll tell me my ship has sailed. (laughs) Yeah, well, yes, you you particularly I would, uh, but others I would not. Uh, Plus, I don't want Johnette mad at me if I did say, yeah, you can come visit us. (laughs) But um, you bet, and if if there's a young man out there, 18 to 40, single, looking at a possible priestly vocation with a dynamic, uh, active preaching missionary preaching apostolate, parish missions, retreats, devotions, conferences throughout the United States, Canada, and Australia, he can give us a call at at that number or go to fathersofmercy.com and go through our website and navigate through it. It's a beautiful website, and uh, he can uh, contact our our vocation director, Father Ken Geraci, at vocations at fathersofmercy.com. That's the word vocation with an S at the end, uh, vocations at fathersofmercy.com. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, and our uh, producer, Mr. Michael McCall. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Fear not, Father Wade. We'll be back live and in living color, God willing, next week. And we'll be back with you tomorrow with Father Mitch Pacwa in the house. Until we get together then, God bless.